All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you here from New York City on the 30th day of May, 2017. Before I get into today's show, I do like to remind you that I am the author of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also, I'd like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? You can do that by going to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. I'd like to encourage you to continue sending along you're um, sending along your criticisms, praises, questions, what have you, uh, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors to make this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynasert, Trimetals Mining, Telson Resources, Klondike Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals, and GMV Minerals Corp. And speaking of GMV Minerals, um, just a few minutes, I will be speaking with Ian Clausen. He's the president and CEO of that company. And he'll tell us about uh, their very ex- successful exploration efforts in southeastern Arizona on a property called the Mexican Hat. And uh, with a market cap of just a little less than $10 million and with the potential for finding multi-million ounce gold deposit. Near surface, open pitable, um, I'm suggesting you may want to listen to what Ian has to say, and he'll be with us right after the first commercial break. I should also mention that posted tomorrow, uh, Chen Lin will be my guest on my Top Stock Picks podcast, and Chen tells me that he's going to be naming his top picks as Novo Resources, that's one of our, one of our sponsors that I just named, Novo Resources, Maya Gold and Silver and Fennec Pharmaceuticals. And uh, Chen has made a lot of money during this bear market in gold and silver in the pharmaceuticals. He always has some really interesting ideas. So you may want to check in at J. Taylor Media tomorrow. J. Taylor Media tomorrow afternoon. We should have that posted, my interview with Chen Lin. Of course, as a regular uh, listener to this show, you know that Novo is personally my own top pick. And this stock has really started to move a bit now after uh, they just recently announced a, a very exciting land acquisition some 350 kilometers west of Beaton's Creek, which is also progressing very nicely. And Dr. Quentin Henning was my guest last week. If, in case you missed that, you can go to jtaylormedia.com and listen 
to what Dr. Henning had to say. I think if you pay attention to what he has to say, you might understand why that stock is starting to move. Also, I should mention that Joe Masmeter, who co-authors a newsletter with Brent Cook, Exploration Insights, was with me uh, to do a top uh, stocks podcast last week, and uh, he talked about Tinka Resources, Kalanex Mines, Nighthawk Gold, and Sabina Gold and Silver Corp. In case you're interested in those stories, go to J. Taylor Media, and you can listen to what Joe had to say about those companies. Well, I've titled today's show, Will Gold Save China When Its Credit System Crashes? As I just mentioned, uh, Ian Klassen, the president and CEO of GMV Minerals, will be with me after the first commercial break. Also, Unrelated, Dan Oliver and Michael Oliver return. Um, China is expanding its monetary system even faster than the Fed and other Western central banks, but China has been amassing huge amounts of physical gold while the West continues in its disdain and blissful ignorance regarding the nature of honest money. And a systemic collapse of China's monetary system uh, is not, in the view of Dan Oliver, in question, the question is when it will take place. And when it does, will a new, more viable, gold-backed monetary system emerge that is used by China and Russia and other new Silk Road trading partners to solidify the system and perhaps compete against a dollar that may be in big trouble? Um, at least that's the view of Dan Oliver. Uh, what might that then mean for the dollar uh, in terms of gold and well, that's, those are the topics we'll talk to Dan Oliver about. And right after our first commercial break, um, as I mentioned, I will be talking to GMV Minerals, that is uh, Ian Klassen, about the Mexican hat property. And it, it hasn't really gotten the kind of respect I feel it deserves, in part, I think, because it's a very low grade. But there are many different aspects to making a viable and economic gold deposit. And um, I think most of those are present. We'll be listening to Ian to get more clarification for that, but we don't have to wait for Michael Oliver. He's with us right now. And before I say hello to Michael, let me remind you that his website is olivermsa.com. Olivermsa.com. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jake. Great to be back. Always good to hear you uh, on this show. And I tell you the truth, when you and I start talking before the show gets started, um, it's always exciting because you are living and breathing these markets. Um, Day in, day out, uh, hour in, hour out, I suppose. Although you're not a real short-term orientated uh, trader, as far as I can tell. Um, but um, y- y- I think one of the biggest questions, I mean, you've, you've called, there were four major markets that you were suggesting going back a year and a half, two years ago, that we needed to keep our eyes on. And you were suggesting that commodities, including gold, and equities, well, commodities, and including gold, were headed higher. The euro was headed higher, but the dollar was going to be heading lower. The T-bond was going to, one of these days, was going to meet its zenith and was going to turn decidedly lower. Now, three of those four markets, the equity market's the only one that hasn't turned down, which you've suggested. Um, the other three have. They've moved in the market. They've moved in the direction that you were predicting. We're seeing higher gold prices, higher commodity prices. The bond, the T-bond, you now have pulled the trigger on a short on the T-bond and on the dollar, a long on commodities and gold. But the equity markets continue to remain stubbornly, stubborn, let's say, and refusing 
to change directions. What, what's your latest take on the equity markets? Well, I think it's it, a lot of people have noticed it. It's a very narrow leadership. But the leadership is extremely strong. It's Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, etc. Like five stocks or so, um, especially Amazon and Google. The uh, they're front end loaded. The Nasdaq 100 is heavily weighted toward those mm-hmm. stocks. Uh, the ETF XLK, which is the tech ETF, is heavily weighted to those stocks. Mm-hmm. And even the S&P 500 is heavily weighted in that direction. So these indexes, where 95% of the stocks in the index are languishing, going down, or marginally going up, the entire explanation for the advance in the big name index is, uh, is that narrow leadership. Mm-hmm. You used to laugh about the Nifty 50. Remember that decade? Right. So? Well, we're now out of the nifty five. Uh, so we're paying a lot of close attention to the technicals. Uh, not the minor day-to-day, but week-to-week, but the, the momentum trends of these stocks are fairly harmonious, and they're vulnerable. Uh, I get emails uh, often from our subscribers saying, you know, will we get a correction, a buying opportunity in Google and Amazon? And I tell them, don't, don't wish for that because it isn't going to be a correction. They cannot correct. Uh, if, I mean, they can correct a couple percent, but if you start getting into the uh, 4 or 5% category dropping off the high, especially in a few weeks, you're going to start to break some stuff that's going to generate more decline. And frankly, uh, in much in excess of 10% off the highs, I'm going to start seeing momentum trend structures on long-term oscillators breaking down, which implies something more like what happened to Apple, uh, which we did call in 2012, when it started to correct, corrected 50%. Mm. Uh, and it was on its own back then, by the way. Apple uh, went down on its own. But uh, it, now we have this cluster of stocks, and they're highly technically similar, so that I think when they start to go, those who are looking for corrections are going to be very shocked about, about how deep the correction will be. Uh, it'll feed into, in my opinion, feed into a bear market for them. They will probably then switch totally from vast outperformers to vast underperformers on a percentage basis. So, uh, like, you know, a dog on a leash, you know, swinging one way and then wildly the other. Uh, and I suspect when they go down, the market will go down with them, but they will go down more. Why? Their technical vulnerability and the fact that uh, several of them have, done, have committed what we call a blow-off, a vertical move that comes at late, late in a bull trend, where you, it's just literally vertical. It's a blow-off. And once the blow-offs end and they abort and they start back down, they don't do it gently. Mm. Uh, they don't correct. They collapse. Uh, now, I'm not saying they collapse off the page, but they, you know, they're a lot more than what's called a correction. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So they should be watched. They should be watched. And people should be careful what they wish for here if they're Not looking for a 5% correction. If you aren't already long and ready to take then that's the other question. Uh, people who are long enjoying this, uh, I somehow doubt that most of them will take profits appropriately. Yeah. Well, it sounds a, a little bit yeah. like an article that I've got posted at miningstocks.com by David Haggath. Uh, titled, We Are Sailing Into a Massive Stock Market Crash. It sounds like uh, you and David may be on the same page, maybe for different... Especially, with, with especially, different, yeah. Yeah. especially go ahead. with regards to that, that cluster of stocks. I think it, it might look yeah. uh, like that. If they, if they get into a, the, the double-digit correction, it'll get into a large double-digit correction. Uh, in the commodity area, there's one market that I haven't commented on lately on your show, and that's mm-hmm. silver. 
Yes, please do. Uh, you know, it's commented about on all the time on advertisements on TV. But I was looking at it today, and, and, and over the last week or so, silver has firmed up much more than gold. Silver's back up to mid-17s. Uh, now, the high of the year this year uh, was not as high as last year's, so there's no comparison on that issue. But we've been up to the mid-18s, okay? And then we retreated down close to 16. Now it's back up to 1750 area. If you see silver, uh, especially any time this quarter, but it... it Let's put it this way. You see silver hit 1870 to 1875. I've got two long-term momentum charts that say to me they're going to blow the lid off of it. So that, that all of this gestation, the, the first surge that came early last year was off the low. That was the end of the bear. Then it had this big retracement that fooled everybody. And now you're in this coiling process. But if you go back up and take out those recent highs of several months ago, which were, I think, about 1860, it's not merely a price chart takeout of a prior high, of really not of great significance in that regard. But on some long-term momentum charts, it's a triple-top breakout, and it should really run. So I would say right now that if you're sitting back watching silver, uh, that's a level to be watching as the next weeks go by. Uh, if we get back up above the highs of the year, because it will unleash probably very strongly if it does that. It'd be one of those uh, famous Michael Oliver whoosh moments, I a suppose. Whoosh, a whoosh moment. It, it's a whoosh chart. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah. And whenever yeah. I identify those, I nail them on the wall and watch them. <laughs> okay, um, well, we'll certainly yeah. do that. And I know you're still very bullish uh, gold as well. Yes, uh, yes, bearish yes. T-bonds, bearish the yes. dollar now. And the dollar... A weaker dollar should be wind at our backs for all the commodities, right? I think so. I think it will be, yes. Yeah. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much. Once again for joining us, always a pleasure listening to your ideas, your views that are based on objective reasoning uh, and your charts. Thank you so much for being with us. So, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Coming up next, Ian Klassen, the president and CEO of GMV Minerals, will be with us to tell us about... Well, I think it's a very exciting story. The market doesn't seem to be doing much more than yawning about it. But if you really take a look at it, I think, and listen to what Ian has to say, I think you have a reason to understand why you should pay some attention to GMV Minerals. We'll be right back with Ian Clausen. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two $200 million. Telson Resources is building a new gold mine in Durango State that is destined to become one of the highest grade gold producers in Mexico. Telson plans to commence production in early 2018 to mine over 1,000 tons per day by the end of the first year. Telson presents an exciting opportunity to investors seeking to position themselves in an exciting and robust new undervalued gold mine opportunity. Telson Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol TSN and on the OTCBB under symbol SOHFF. 
Tri-Metals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Tri-Metals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. Tri-Metals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. Tri-Metals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me for the first time, Ian Claussen. He's the president and CEO of GMV Minerals. Ian has uh, over 25 years of experience in public company management, public relations, government affairs. He's been an entrepreneur with extensive experience in administration, finance, government, legislative policy media uh, relationship strategies and project management. And in addition to his role as president and CEO of GMV Minerals, Ian also sits on the board of directors of several private and public companies. And prior to his management activities within private and public companies, uh, Ian held a variety of positions within federal Canadian politics, including senior political advisor to the Minister of, of State for Transportation and Chief of Staff Office of the Speaker of the Canadian House of Commons. So obviously, um, Ian Ian has a very impressive background. He's a highly regarded Canadian citizen. So I'm really happy to uh, welcome you, Ian. Thanks for joining me today. Well, hi, Jay. Thank you. It's very good to be with you and your listeners. All, always good uh, to have uh, a CEO of a company that I like, that I own, and uh, also as a recommendation in my own newsletter. Uh, I must have to give some credit to Eric Coffin, my good friend, uh, who does some great work and writes a wonderful newsletter in terms of the uh, uh, the um, resource sector for sure. And Eric, well, I know he has a very high opinion of you. I, I've also known uh, Dr. David Webb for a number of years, who I know is one of your key technical people there. But um, it, it, so it really is. I'm really glad that you could join me today. Before we get started, I should mention that GMV Minerals trades in Toronto under the symbol GMV. Uh, you can buy it in the United States, as I have under the symbol GMVMF. 32.4 million shares is all there is outstanding now. Um, 35 cents Canadian, the last I looked, gives it a market cap of around 11.3 million in Canadian money or 8.5 million in U.S. dollars. Well, Ian, uh, given your background, and you certainly most could have uh, could have a job, I think, with a lot of different Canadian companies. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to head up GMV Minerals and, and then maybe a little bit about the company's evolution to the point where it is now with its flagship property, the Mexican Hat Project in southeastern Arizona? You, you bet, Jay. Uh, yeah, and thank you for touching upon uh, uh, backgrounds with uh, Eric and, and David. Uh, both are extraordinary 
Um, they don't suffer fools. They know exactly what they're doing. And uh, I've known both for, oh, probably approaching 20 years. So uh, when, uh, when they pay attention to what we're doing, um, and Dave, who's, uh, who's internal with us, um, you know, we're, uh, we're in good shape going forward. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I had a role in, uh, in Canadian federal politics. You know, <laughs> that, uh, I see that as a, a helpful thing in this uh, sometimes cynical junior exploration sector. Mm-hmm. Um, not only did it uh, help build a, a bit of a thick hide for me, but uh, it's also a, a pretty good uh, foundation for a decent business network. But mm-hmm. in, in terms of GMV, um, and after some time in working in some difficult conditions in South America, facing a multi-year turndown in our market, um, it just reinforced our desire and importance to focus on a project in a mining-friendly jurisdiction, you know, an area where the rule of law applies, no extra impediments like a foreign language to have to work with or, or uh, odd legal nuances that, uh, that apply. So in 2014, we were delighted uh, to turn our attention to Arizona. We knew the Mexican Hat Gold Project. Uh, it was one that Placer Dome USA discovered and spent a number of years working on. Uh, we liked its pedigree, felt that with a variety of new advancements since they worked on the property uh, in geophysics and various other aspects of exploration, uh, we could get to work and make a difference. And I think we're right. We were in the right place at the right time and have 100% interest in the property. You alluded to the uh, rule of law and um, some of the factors, I think, that are very, very important, obviously, in successful projects. But can you talk a little bit about the infrastructure uh, and the attitude towards mining that I think are very positive for your project, the Mexican Hat Project in Arizona? Yeah, you bet. Um, You know, the, the Mexican Hat is located in a sparsely populated part of Cochise County in southeast Arizona. It's about seven miles to the south of a little town called Pierce. Uh, there's an undeveloped gravel road passing through the property, a large number of drill roads, uh, as a matter of fact, accessing much of the deposit, courtesy of its previous owners. Uh, water is abundant, uh, shallow on the property, and a power line servicing the ranchers that parallel the gravel road uh, is uh, already there and established. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a... There's a uh, self-sustaining power plant that's um, only 10 miles away from where we are. Mm. Locals in the area, um, all important. Uh, they recognize the importance of uh, economic replenishment and good jobs, uh, and they've lived with mining in the, in, in the area over a great number of years. Um, in terms of permitting, uh, you know, this is always a process, regardless of where everyone's developing. Uh, it's always a bit of a challenge, but we're, we're good with that. You know, we uphold the importance of doing business the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our situation, once we file a mining plan of operation, which is likely next year, uh, we'll embark upon the environmental review at the federal level. Um, and, you know, at its core, that protects the area and those that live nearby. So uh, we're looking forward to meeting and exceeding the requirements at the permitting stage. Uh, you have... A, a resource there now. It's I think a, a little over maybe a half a million ounces. I, I don't think that your Mexican Hat project has uh, has really caught the imagination of investors yet to any great extent because it's relatively low grade. But uh, you and I know that grade, whilst it's important, it's not the only factor. Uh, the cost of getting it out of the ground is the bottom line. You know, what does it cost to produce an ounce of gold? And, of course, you're a ways away from any definitive economics yet, but 
there are some factors. Uh, perhaps you could talk to us first about your your resource, um, and uh, you know what some of the factors may be there that that might bode well for the economic viability of the Mexican hat. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, we've got an existing inferred mineral resource of about 24 million tons, uh, grading 0.7 grams per gold. Uh, it is open in all directions and to depth. Uh, under our initial 43101, uh, you were right, we have uh, 531,000 ounces of gold, uh, but this is uh, something that was uh, set about a year and a half ago. Since then, uh, we've been very actively drilling uh, to expand uh, in all directions uh, at the hat itself. The mineralization outcrops uh, give us an excellent strip ratio to start with, uh, one and a half to one. Uh, this is further improved by uh, very high recoveries obtained in uh, metallurgical work that we've done, both uh, a column leach test uh, as well as a number of, uh, of bottle roll tests. And, and uh, you know, our results have been spectacular. Um, in the, in the low to mid-90s uh, in the bottle roll results. And uh, the column leach, which in particular tested the lowest grade within our property to test run of mine, uh, graded a 70% return. So, uh, you know, these are, these are excellent results, and uh, you're quite right. It's not just a, a matter of uh, dictating ounces in the ground. Uh, you have to be able to demonstrate in a low-grade open pit, heap leach scenario that you can extract the rock in a, in an economic fashion, and uh, we really believe we'll, we'll be able to. The mineralization itself is fully oxidized to the deepest holes that we've done, 300 meters below the surface, and uh, to date, there's uh, no negative elements identified in any of the work. So from a metallurgical standpoint, I think we're in great shape. Yeah, that's, that's quite deep for oxidization. And uh, So you have a low stripping ratio, good, strong metallurgy, and run of, run of mine, which means you don't, have to, you don't have to crush it and spend a lot of money crushing the rock and all that. So, yeah, it, it looks really, really positive to me. You're drilling now. How much more of a program do you have, and, and when might we see some drill results? Um, well, we, uh, we plan to do about 30,000 feet of drilling. We're, we're beyond halfway through that. Uh, mm-hmm. We just completed our initial three holes. Uh, we will move the drill rig uh, in June uh, and, uh, and drill another oh, approximately nine holes uh, on federal land, and, uh, and then we're going to move up north uh, and test there. Yeah, you mentioned moving up north. I mean, when I look at your map uh, of your property, um, the area where your half a million ounces and growing uh, are focused is really the, what is known as the Mexican hat area, but you've I think doubled your land space and looking north, uh, as you as you just mentioned, you're going to be moving the drill up north. You know, you've got several targets there, a porphyry, an epithermal, a silicified zone, an area there where Placer Dome did some drilling and I guess got some reasonably good good results in the past. So um, what what are your plans there now? So you're really moving up there. You've got a lot of a lot to shoot at there, don't you, up, up that way? We do, Jay. Um, you know, when we when we started out, we we really had our our singular focus on the Mexican hat. Um, but uh, as we did some more uh, background work and some uh, uh, area geophysics, and looked at uh, all the reports filed by previous operators back to Placer, uh, it was just you know, and and it was low hanging fruit. It, it was hard to to not go out and grab some of the land that uh, existed to the north of us. There are there are dozens of mineral deposits in the belt uh, that hosts the Mexican hat. There's the Corton-Gleason district to the south, uh, in addition to Excelsior's Johnson Camp. 
and just to the north of us, the Commonwealth Mine in Pierce, which is a, a silver gold property. Um, you know, there's evidence of mineralization in all exposures on the hills, uh, but there's a thin mantle of overburden, and the, the geophysics and the soil geochemistry has identified a number of, uh, of uh, uh, gold mineralization targets that uh, we think will be uh, anomalous. One such target was what you just referenced, was tested earlier this year uh, with a confirmation um, of, uh, of structure, but uh, unfortunately it had some lower grades, while another uh, was drilled by Placer Dome up north in the 1990s, uh, offensive holes roughly on, on this new land that we acquired, roughly 100 meters apart from each other. Uh, these encountered very good anomalous gold. Two of, mm-hmm. two of the holes, in fact, graded uh, higher than our average grade at the Mexican hat itself. So uh, these are buried, as I say, under thin gravels and sands, and, and uh, we think are geophysically interpreted as porphyry. So we're going to, uh, in July, move the rig there and, uh, and give a test to those up north and, and see what uh, we can determine. Ian, you're uh, an exploration company. Can you talk, uh, take a minute or two to just talk about your, your plans, your business model, your people? Um, are you going to look to put this into production, or are you really looking to, to prove up a, a deposit that will gain the attention of, of some producers? What's your strategy? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a question I, 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 uh, I've heard from a number of people over the years. You know, our, our focus, first and foremost, uh, is to expand the tonnage and gold at the Mexican hat. Uh, that's been our original goal, and it will be what we'll continue to do. We have 100% of the deposit and thankfully have a treasury, uh, treasury that allows us to, uh, to advance that project from uh, where we picked it up to where we're going to carry forward into 2018. We expect uh, that uh, we'll, after drilling this, uh, this season, we'll, we'll issue a new resource calculation in the early fall, and uh, all things being equal, we'll have a preliminary economic assessment out within four months of that. So, um, you know, that being said, uh, there has been an uptick in M&A activity in the industry, uh, so the prospect, you know, does present itself as a, as a, as a possibility. Uh, if if we were to get an offer uh, that would make us blush, uh, you know, we we would take it to the shareholders. Uh, one of the things that I find really attractive with just a minute or so left here, Ian, you you have a very share a very tight share structure, and you know the the bane to investors in this sector is always dilution. But you with thirty five million shares or something like that. Um, uh, how how are you going to protect shareholders? I, I guess obviously with success through the drill bit, you're going to see higher share prices, and then if you need to raise more money, you can do it more efficiently. But could you talk just a minute about who owns your company? Who who owns those? Are there any major shareholders that own a big chunk of that? Yeah, uh, no, we're fairly widely held for a company that only has 33 million shares issued. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we probably have. Um, ha- half a dozen to ten individual uh, high net worth individuals that uh, own uh, seven figures, um, mm-hmm. but uh, you know not, none of them at the ten percent uh, threshold. And uh, uh, you know we're looking to uh, go from a, a largely retail audience uh, that we have right now, following our story, to uh, with a renewed calculation in the fall, uh, moving into uh, a little bit more of an uh, institutional focus going forward. All right. Well, we'll have to leave a go at that, Ian. Um, thank you very much. It's really, a, I think, a very promising story. And with a market cap of under $10 million in U.S. money, uh, I think it's something people should really pay attention to. I have. I own it. And 
I'm telling my subscribers they should really pay attention to this story. It's sort of under the radar screen. Thanks for helping us uh, know more about it, Ian, and we'll look to talk to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. My pleasure. My, my pleasure, Jay. Thanks very much. All right, folks. Well, that's uh, all. We have to go to break now, but don't go away because Dan Oliver will join me, and he's going to talk about the dynamics of gold and why the Chinese know that its price is headed inevitably much, much higher. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSR. RPF, respectively. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Dan Oliver. Dan uh, has been the director of the Committee for Monetary Research and Education. That's a nonprofit organization that seeks to promote greater public understanding of the nature of money. And, um, well, the organization hasn't been too active recently, but I understand in talking to Dan that uh, it may be um, starting up again, and it's certainly uh, an, a, um, an event and an institution that I've enjoyed in the past, uh, uh, very intellectual 
intellectually inclined, those that care about money, which is very, very important. I think most people care about money, but they don't care to understand very much about it. And that's what we want to talk to Dan a little bit about today uh, and help us understand money. Um, Dan also is the founder of and managing director of Mermican Mermic- Capital. I always have trouble saying that. Mermican Capital. Um, and uh, he was previously a partner at Bearing Capital LLC. That's an asset management firm specializing in Latin American energy, commodity, and infrastructure projects. But uh, mostly, I really appreciate Dan's writings. He writes c- quite a bit, um, probably not as much as he'd like to, but uh, a lot of really interesting things having to do with money and gold and investments that um, well, most of the people in this show that listen to this show, at least, are interested in. So thanks for joining me again, Dan. Thanks for having me. Dan, I'd like to talk to you about your um, May 19th missive, um, headed up China Wobbles. Uh, in that letter, you stated that despite the fact that gold has been a, a 4,000-year monetary history, it's been money in the forever. People have always considered gold to be money, until recent days anyway. You say that there's still confusion regarding its proper price. Can you share with our listeners your thoughts regarding the proper price or the, the real price of gold? Sure, but I, I'd like to first uh, play up on your comment about what money is. I, I was at a, uh, a Grants conference a few years ago, and he had Bill Ackman as a guest, and, and he asked Ackman the very question, what, what is a dollar? He said to Ackman back when Ackman was successful, you're accumulating these things as, as fast as you are, uh, but but what are they? What are they worth? What, what are they? And I haven't responded by saying, "Well, you know, what I'm doing to protect myself against the dollars. I've just bought the penthouse in that spindly building they put up on 57th Street. That Bloomberg, you know, changed the zoning laws to let these billionaires build these these uh, huge, healthy towers uh-huh. uh, for 100 million dollars. So he built a 100 million dollar apartment. That was his hard asset to, <laughs> to protect against, you know, the dollar collapsing. I thought about what what you know, is he serious in the sense that uh, supposedly he was buying it to flip it to somebody else. You think who can afford a hundred million dollar apartment? Yeah. Well, that's his price. So, so more than that. And of course, the answer is a handful of Chinese and Russian oligarchs who themselves depend upon that kind of system to have that kind of purchasing power. And so instead of actually protecting himself from the from the dollar's demise and the credible's demise, he's actually doubling down on his bet. The money he has won out of his hedge fund in the credit battle, in the credit game, he's actually levering up even more so in his purchase. So I, I, I do think that understanding what the dollar is and, and how it functions is important not just to ordinary people, but the successful people don't understand it either, which I find uh, quite extraordinary. Mm, yeah. Um, but, but, to, but to answer your question, I mean, you know, gold has been uh, money for, for thousands of years, and I get the question all the time on, on panels and, and people talking to me saying, well, how, you know, what influences this price? Is it interest rates? Is it, is it trade flows? You know, what, what is it? And the, and the answer is no, no, you don't get it. Nothing, you know, the, the price of gold, the value of gold is constant. Or, or relatively constant, or at least more constant than anything else that man has ever uh, uh, discovered for monetary use. And that's why gold has been money for all this time. And so the real question is, is not what changes the price of gold in dollars, but what changes the, the price of dollars in terms of gold. And once mm-hmm. you turn the question around, it becomes a much more uh, a clear response. And, and, the, and the answer is another question, which is, what is a dollar? Now, as you probably know, in the original... Uh, a coinage act of 1792, the dollar was defined as a certain number of grains of silver, and then various denominations were defined in terms of silver and gold, a bimetallic uh-huh. system, which actually didn't work very well. But at least it was defined as a unit of mass. And now if you ask them, what is a dollar, they're a bit flummoxed, and there is an answer still. The dollar is currently defined as a unit of liability 
of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. That's what a dollar is. And so you say, well, what, what is its value? Well, there are two ways to consider it. The first is uh, the liability of a balance sheet cannot long remain more valuable than the assets backing. Uh, and so what assets does the Fed have? Well, it has it used to have, by the way, very short-term government bonds and gold and commercial bills maturing into gold back before uh, the Great Depression. And that made the dollar extremely uh, strong and stable. Now, uh, the, the Fed has as its assets very long-term government bonds, which are very sensitive to interest rates. And then they also own mortgage-backed securities, which are more sensitive to interest rates. So you have uh-huh. these highly, highly volatile assets backing this liability, this thing called a dollar. And so when rates go up, we all know that bonds go down. And so, you know, increasing rates is bad for the dollar, good for gold, just as it was in the 70s. Uh, there is a secondary dynamic, however, that's, I think, more short-term in effect, but just as real. And that is that if we look at the dollar system as a system, uh, there is about $4 trillion of base money out there, and there's about $90 trillion of debt denominated in dollars. And so when rates go up, everybody who has debt, and that's just about everybody who owns a house or a car or really anything, especially businesses, uh, need to pay more dollars to maintain their debts. And if they don't maintain their debts, they lose their assets. So there's a huge incentive uh, to hold the dollars on hand to make your uh, interest payment, your, 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 your interest payments on uh-huh. your debt. So when they jack rates up, the demand for dollars as a thing, as its own thing, as the paper itself goes up. And so uh-huh. the value goes up and then gold and everything falls. And so, that, so, so you have these two competing effects. The, the, the short squeeze aspect of it, I think, is the more immediate, the more powerful in the short term. But the valuation aspect, which is what is the dollar's value as in terms of its assets, is the more long-term and more important relationship. And I think we're nearing the time when the short squeeze of the dollar is going to break and the value of the dollar is going to sink to the level of the assets backing it. And in an in a environment of rising rates, that is going to be a very low number indeed. Mm-hmm. It really is quite a dilemma for us, uh, for us guys that understand this, uh, what you're talking about, the instability of the system. But timing is everything, Daniel. You know, um, I keep thinking I'm the laughing stock of a lot of my friends who have enjoyed profits during this last bubble we've had uh, since 2011 or so until last year. Gold and gold shares were a horrible place to be. You'd be much better off in the dollar, uh, in the stock market. The stock market continues to see new highs, it seems. Um, How do we... How do we know when to get off the train? And, you know, and, and I mean, certainly you wouldn't be one that would say we need to have everything that we own in gold. We, sh- we must certainly have to have some other, some other investments from time to time. Do you not agree with that? Yeah, well, Jay, I'll first of all say you're a very good company. You, you may recall that uh, Sir Isaac Newton made some money at the beginning of the um, uh, uh, South Sea bubble. Mm-hmm. And then he got out. He knew it was a bubble. And he kept going up. And all his friends were getting richer and richer and richer. And he got annoyed that his less intelligent friends were <laughs> making such money. So he jumped right in back at the top and, and, and lost a huge amount. Uh, and, and so, you know, <laughs> having your friends laugh at you is not easy. On the other hand, uh, when everyone's involved in a bubble and you're not, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, you'll, you'll win out. And, and I think especially in the context of now where the credit bubble, at least this round of it, certainly seems to be closer to the peak than, than the bottom. I think these things are 
they're curves, they're fractals, they're parabolas, or have these mathematical figures that mm-hmm. are very hard to figure out where you are on the curve mathematically. And so, yeah, it could keep going. And, and also, in, in a bubble, usually most of the gain is done right at the very end. And so, you know, unless you're extremely fleet of foot to get at the top, it's virtually impossible. But in terms of timing, if you look back at uh, the last century of, of the Fed's influence and the century before that under the Bank of England's influence, uh, it's pretty clear, the pattern is pretty clear where uh, you have these credit bubbles grow, these global credit bubbles, even the 19th century grow up around the world uh, when interest rates were set too low by the central bank. And then the central bank gets spooked for whatever reason in the 19th century because they're losing gold. Uh, in, the, in the 20th century, it's because the asset markets are going crazy. And they raise rates to contain themselves, to save themselves, essentially. And then what happens is, not immediately, but shortly thereafterwards, uh, uh, the credit bubbles across the planet come tumbling down. And, and that is precisely what happened, uh, by the way, in 1928. It was, the, it was Q1 of 28 that the Fed got very spooked about the stock market. They started raising rates for a year and a half. As they raised rates, the stock market ignored them and actually uh, started accelerating higher to the upside, the, the final climax of that bubble. And about uh, Q2, Q3 of 19. Uh, 29, the economy starts rolling over, commodities start rolling over, the markets are going higher, the Fed keeps raising rates to control the stock market specifically. They raised rates for the final time in September of 1929, and then, of course, we all know it was in late October, a month and a half later, that the markets collapsed uh, more than 40% over a month period. So I, I see a very good analogy to where we are now, where the Fed's in raising rates, they're doing it uh, 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 self-consciously to rein in asset markets. Asset markets are ignoring them and going up faster and faster and faster. Meanwhile, we see a lot of the economic indicators that they follow rolling over. The uh, the pace of new business lending is falling. Commodities mm-hmm. are falling again. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when you look at a lot, many of the metrics, the Fed itself says it follows. They are either falling or at least the growth is slowing. And yet they uh, keep announcing more rate increases because the stock market is ignoring them. And, and that can continue for a certain period of time. It's already continued for a certain period of time. But I think you know, once you hit that inflection point, the fall is very, very fast and very, very dramatic. Daniel, in your article, you talked about how gold um, you know, is, is priced in dollars. But uh, more importantly, we should be looking at how gold is priced in commodities. Why so? Well, you know, when, when, you look, when you consider credit bubbles before 1971, it's very clear because prices were done in terms of gold. So it meant for uh, commodities specifically to, to go higher in terms of gold. Uh, it was very clear if the, if the nominal price went up, the real price was going up. And the reason these prices would go up in these bubble periods is because what a bubble is in its essence is an artificially low interest rate. Uh, what that does is it overvalues long-term cash flows. People want to go buy, build long-term uh, lead items like uh, like ships and buildings and those sorts of things, and that puts lots of pressure on industrial commodities. So you see mm-hmm. a huge increase in commodities, which of course brings on new capacity. People start uh, developing new new mines. So I saw uh, last week NASA has an astro- uh, a satellite going to an asteroid that has what is ten thousand quadrillion dollars of iron on it. Oh. <laughs> Maybe they can bring that back. Who knows? But but you get such sort of craziness. In the nineteenth century, was going to places like Siberia and Argentina to get commodities because everyone needs them. Uh, and then, of course, what happens is that you get all this overbuilding and long-term lead items. The prices fall. These projects can't make their interest payments, so the banks blow up. Uh, and then you have all this overcapacity in commodities, and so commodities collapse. And this, again, this, this story should sound very familiar to anyone who follows markets because it's precisely what's happening today. And the, and the locus of, of this bubble is China. China absorbs you know, roughly half 
of all sorts of commodities, copper, tin, iron ore, et cetera, et cetera. And they buy these things to build ghost cities that have no cash flow. They buy them to build, you know, secondary ring roads around tertiary cities, et cetera, you know, fast, uh, fast speed rail to nowhere. Uh, it's, it's a bit like, you know, Pharaoh, when he took all the wealth in Egypt to build a pyramid, it looked very impressive. But it doesn't produce anything. And these assets the Chinese are building don't produce anything. And so at some point, their bank system is going to blow up. According to Kyle Bass, who follows this stuff very closely, it is already blowing up as, as these wealth product management uh, products, which are basically borrowing short to lend long, which is all a bank does, uh, are, are not rolling. And so that, that usually signals the end of these things. And when that happens, uh, you know, the, the demand for commodities to build these pyramids are, is going to collapse. And so the commodity prices will collapse, too. And again, gold is relatively, and I say relatively immune to this because people don't build things with gold. It has no cash flow. And so it's very resistant to the business cycle. And that's precisely what makes it good money. G- George Gilder wrote, uh, I think he's right about this, it's, it's impossible that the Godel theorem apparently makes it impossible to measure a system by in terms of something within the system. And the point is gold is not within the industrial system because it has no, or it has extremely little industrial use compared to its, its supply. So it, it, it's the, it tells us, it's the signal that tells us where we're in the credit cycle and was telling us is that we're near, we're, we've gone over the peak and now the only question is how fast we fall down the other side. Now, the big question is to me, Jay, is, is this just one more cycle and uh-huh. they'll print the money and then we'll go up again. And uh-huh. so gold bars will be happy for a few months uh-huh. and then you know we'll have some pain again. Well, does that happen or does the whole system collapse? When the uh-huh. whole system collapses, your gold's not going to two or three thousand. It's going to eight or nine or ten thousand. And those numbers are not just picked out of a hat. That, that, that is the number required to make gold uh, represent one third of the Fed's liabilities. The Fed says it has 8,300 tons of gold. Uh, we know its liability is about four and a half trillion dollars. And so you just do the math and the number comes to about 8,000. And that's one third is about the level of backing that this dominant central bank has had for 300 years, the, the Fed and Bank of England. So that, that's a, that is a real number, not just a, you know, a pie in the sky number. And that's, that's, that's what will happen when the whole cycle ends, not necessarily this next round, but that, that's where we're headed eventually. All right. Well, that presupposes then that the dollar basically ceases to exist, at least in any meaningful way, in terms of its value, I, I would guess. Um, but also, it seems to me, Dan, what you're arguing for is gold in relative terms, gold relative to commodities and, and other assets. In other words, you know, copper and iron and prices for basic commodities could go down, and so could gold, I guess. But it's a matter of gold retaining relative value over everything else. Do I have that right? Right. Well, yeah, down in terms of what? Again, I mean, in the first round of big credit collapse, gold can go down in nominal terms because there's a big short squeeze on dollars. That's true. Mm-hmm. But we know the Fed's going to print the money to bail it out. If they don't, uh, if they don't bail it out, what happens is all the bonds the Fed owns starts being defaulted upon. There's yeah. no tax revenue. So, so, so that the, the plunge in gold, which can happen, doesn't necessarily will happen, but it certainly can happen, is 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 guaranteed to be short short lived. Now, how short? I don't know exactly, but short lived until either the bank system starts teetering along with the government or until they print. But, but yes, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the crisis and the crash, commodities fall dramatically as against gold, wherever the nominal price of gold is. And of course, this is very good for gold miners because all a gold mine is really is a spread trade between commodities and gold. Your inputs are industrial commodities and your output is gold. So it's very good for the uh, economics of gold mining. On the other hand, if we have uh, rabid inflation, uh, maybe gold mining isn't the best place to be, but you sure want to own some gold, I suppose. Well, let's let's think between credit inflation and monetary debasement, right? Mm -hmm. 
both send prices higher. Nominal terms are very different animals. They credit inflation again is this is this banking driven asset inflation mm-hmm. that drives commodity prices higher. That's a terrible environment to be in gold market. And that's the environment we've been in essentially. Yeah. Uh, and the monetary debasement is very different. That's when the unit of account starts collapsing. And 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 that that makes just you know, planning for economic uh, projects very difficult. And that is a that is actually the ideal time for gold mining. That is what was happening in the 70s. And I think that's where we're headed only more so because the Fed is in much worse shape than it was in the 70s. It doesn't mean that this means hyperinflation or the dollar disappears. I mean, don't think about it. The dollar in the 70s went from being 135th of an ounce of gold to at the peak 850th. That was a huge decline. Yeah. But the U.S. didn't collapse. We're also here. So I'm not a, I'm not a Weimar Germany guy yet. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you can definitely have the unit of account really fall pretty low over a period of time and, and survive, but the gold investors do very well in that period. And Dan, with just a few minutes left, um, getting back to China, you talked about the problems that, you know, it would seem almost inevitable that we're going to have some sort of a, a banking crisis, a, a collapse of the system, if you will. But China has been building up their gold reserves tremendously. We don't know exactly how much they own, but they are the largest gold producer in the world. They have encouraged their citizens to own gold. Uh, they have, we, we get reports of gold coming through Switzerland um, into China over the last number of years, by some accounts, Alistair McLeod and others, you know, suggest that China has an awful lot more gold than what they're admitting to, an awful lot, maybe getting closer to what the United States claims to have. Why do you think China is building up its gold reserves so massively? Do you think they sort of understand the dynamics of money that you're talking about, that maybe they understand that maybe gold will provide some some solidity to the system or to a recreation of a new system that might have some gold component to it? Yeah, well, well. first of all, China's not going to avoid pain. I mean, the, the problem is they say we're, we're in a regular credit growth and then and then have a soft landing. The problem is what a credit bubble does is it changes the structure of production of the economy. And so they're going to have a major problem readjusting to reality, number one. Number two, I, I do think that Chinese are clever, however, and they understand that the dollar system is, is limited. It has, it has a limited life. And so if you look back at Chinese history, uh, the thing they care most about, the leadership, is stability. And I think that the idea of importing gold and, and also encouraging a distribution of gold into the hinterland to make sure mm-hmm. that the, the people have gold is a very wise thing to do from their perspective because it means when the monetary system collapses, and, and, and it will, uh, the people have some purchasing power. And so it, it sort of ensures the leadership to try to mitigate the chaos that a collapsing dollar will have on on their economy. All right. Um, with respect to gold, you indicate that you want to own gold mining companies, but not just every kind of gold mining company. Uh, talk to us just with, with the next minute or so. What kind of gold mining companies are you looking to, um, to own these days in this environment? Yeah, so, so what, what I'm very clear on myself is that uh, the bubble is collapsing and the gold commodity ratio is going up. So the margin of gold mining in terms of gold is going to go up, right? One thing that complicates that story is if a gold miner has a lot of nominal debt and the increase in gold commodity ratio happens in a falling price environment, which can happen temporarily, as it did in 2008, that can really put pressure on operating companies that have a lot of debt. Uh, and, and, of course, the opposite is also true, right? If, if gold goes up in terms of commodities in a rising price environment, as in the 70s, that's fantastic for companies with debt because the debt disappears. So, so when looking at gold mine companies, you have to think about this perspective. I, I don't mind taking gold mining operating company with a lot of debt if the debt is due in a very long term because that suggests to me they'll be able to survive mm-hmm. a period of falling gold prices, which again, I, I think is necessarily limited. 
in a crisis situation. Uh, coming with, with short-term debt, of course, is much more problematic because they might have roll their debt at just the wrong time and then the equity gets wiped out. Alternatively, when you look at development companies, uh, they're better uh, uh, considered as, as call options on the story. They don't have debt because there's no operations. So they don't have debt. They, they, they work on equity and therefore, again, you care less about the short-term nominal price of gold and more about the medium, long-term mm-hmm. gold commodity ratio. So that's how I look at these companies when I, when I evaluate them. All right. And um, optimistic about the current environment for gold miners? I, I, I think it's hard to imagine a better environment. Again, I say that with the caveat of that we could have a, a few-month painful period when, when the really crisis really crunch begins. But I, I think that'll be short and sure than it was in 2008 because everybody's learned, including yeah. the authorities, that when this happens, you know, what steps will happen next? I think we'll have it in much faster order. So it's be much harder to catch catch the swings here. So I, I, again, I I don't know that gold falls uh, initially. It may be you know, back in 2008, you had lots of levered hedge funds that were long all these stocks to to a huge degree and gold itself. And they all got margin calls and redemptions and down it went. That's not really as true today. So uh, I'm not convinced it does. I think if it does, it'll be quicker than it was last time. And uh, and, and again, I, my own view is that when, when you look at the Fed raising rates in a ridiculously over-levered economy, mm. uh, it's only a matter of time until the wheels start popping up. And it looks like that may already be happening now. So, um, so I think it should be fun for gold investors uh, in the near future. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Dan. We'll have to leave it at that. Uh, Thanks very much for being with us. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, John Williams of Shadow Stats fame will be with us. John is very concerned that the dollar is nearing a period of considerable weakness, which should be very bullish for gold and gold shares. Well, that certainly is consistent with the views of Michael Oliver as well. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by up to 40%, increase torque, improve engine oil quality, and provide up to 19% in fuel savings. Our leading-edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Reducing the amount of greenhouse gases provides benefits to the environment, to communities and businesses, and to our shareholders. Tri-Metals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company exploring and developing its near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Tri-Metals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a gold resource with a robust preliminary economic assessment. Tri-Metals believes that with further drilling, there is a significant potential to discover 3 to 5 million ounces of gold at Gold Springs. Tri-Metals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively, and its website is trimetalsmining.com.